This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, a threshold was recently crossed in West Africa. The Ebola epidemic was declared officially over in one of the hardest hit countries, Liberia. Liberia, Sierra Leone, Guinea saw more than 11,000 people die during the outbreak, made worse by the fact that there was little or no medical infrastructure to handle the highly contagious and deadly disease. While Ebola is over in Liberia, there have been a handful of new cases in the other two countries. So far, it looks like control measures are working, though. It was months into the outbreak before the international community fully mobilized to help confront the epidemic. The World Health Organization took some heat for not being fully prepared to handle such a significant global health crisis. It's safe to say, Margaret, that the entire world community learned uh, a tough but valuable lesson about what to do should there be another such epidemic. And the World Health Organization learned from that experience, as we all do. Uh, they've since set up a $100 million fund so they won't be overwhelmed the next time by a global health crisis. And those countries that were so poorly equipped to handle the volume of disease now do have more resources at their disposal, newly erected clinics, emergency vehicles, and even the basics of sanitation and medical supplies. Hmm. You know, I often imagine how difficult it is to deliver critical care in some of these parts of the world uh, with little or no no health infrastructure. Uh, When you compare that to what we have in this country, it's hard to fathom. And yet there's still so much to be improved upon here, even in our first world healthcare infrastructure. An estimated 100,000 Americans die each year, for example, from hospital-acquired infections or some other medical error in the hospital. And that is something that our guest today is very knowledgeable about. Leah Binder is CEO of LeapFrog Group, an organization dedicated to improving safety and quality in hospitals. She also launched one of the nation's first hospital rating systems, and it helped to create a culture of more transparency on health outcomes. But Lori Robertson will also stop by. The managing editor of factcheck.org is always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. No matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Leah Binder in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's Headline News. I'm Mariano here with these healthcare headlines. $200 million, that's the payout being paid to victims of the 2012 meningitis outbreak that sickened hundreds across the country, linked to a now defunct pharmacy processing center in Massachusetts. 750 people were sickened and 64 died after taking steroid injections for back pain. The settlement in the bankruptcy hearings regarding the New England Compounding Center has been accepted by plaintiffs in the case. It also led to newer and more stringent regulations governing compounding pharmacies. Antibiotics use in animal production has led to a growing antibiotic resistance in humans. Now the FDA wants to get a better handle on how widespread the practice is. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration saying it's asking drug makers for data on antimicrobials sold for use in each food animal. The FDA believes the new detailed information will help discern patterns of resistance and identify disease trends related to the increased use of antibiotics in the food stream. And first came the carrot, now the stick. Apparently, 
when employee wellness programs around smoking cessation offer to pay a worker a dividend for quitting, the motivation is far less effective than threatening to take money away, even if the amount is not significant. There are increasingly successful programs being deployed, motivating, say, pregnant women to quit at least during gestation. But a recent UPenn study looked at different incentives to entice smokers to quit, and having a little skin in the game seemed to have an added incentive. The researchers compared a few approaches. Some people simply got cash for quitting. Others were offered a carrot and stick approach. They'd get a similar financial reward if they quit, but they'd also lose $150 of their own money if they started again. While researchers found it hard to convince people to put down a deposit of their own money, they said the results were remarkable. The deposit programs were twice as effective as rewards and five times more effective than providing free smoking cessation aids like nicotine replacement. And Elizabeth Bing has died. The centenarian was the mother of the Lamaze childbirth trend of the 20th century, revolutionizing the practice of childbirth. She pushed the ideas of Dr. Fernand Lamaze to mostly male OBGYNs of the day who relied heavily on sedating mothers and isolating fathers during the childbirth experience. So-called natural childbirth involving preparing both mother and expectant fathers in relaxation and breathing techniques to get through labor without anesthesia. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Leah Binder, Chief Executive Officer of the LeapFrog Group, a not-for-profit organization dedicated to improving safety and quality in hospitals at LeapFrog. Ms. Binder oversees the hospital survey and launched the hospital safety score system. She recently topped Modern Healthcare's list of 25 most influential women in healthcare. She earned two masters from UPenn in communications and government. Leah, welcome to Conversations in Healthcare. Thank you so much. You know, I'm really taken back by uh, the number that you cite that uh, one in four Americans suffer from some kind of harm while in a hospital. And yet, in spite of the growing interest in patient safety, these numbers uh, loom large. Could you share with our listeners some of the more telling patient safety stats and what its cost is exactly to the healthcare system? Well, I think the most disturbing statistic of all is that anywhere from 200,000 to 400,000 people die from preventable errors and accidents and infections in hospitals. Um, That's a population the size of Miami. The other thing that's disturbing is that's a broad range, 200,000 to 400,000. Even today, we really don't know Hmm. exactly how many people die. So it really shows that not only uh, are we in trouble, but we are also not doing what we need to do to hold health systems accountable. You can't hold them accountable if we don't even know the actual numbers. And so that is why LeapFrog exists, to do just that, to to recognize when the numbers are frightening, to do something about it, to drive a market for improvement, and to count. Well, I do believe, I think we all want to think that patient safety is gaining traction industry-wide. And a component of virtually every initiative is transparency. And the momentum, much of it came from concerned employers, the people who were 
paying the bills for healthcare, who saw rapidly rising medical costs. Uh, so maybe tell us just a little more about how Leapfrog got launched uh, as an organization to address these concerns. They are very similar uh, folks now sitting around the table at Leapfrog, uh, mostly purchasers of health benefits, as you point out. These are large companies such as Boeing or with quality. And what they said to LeapFrog in the beginning is that they often spend more on health benefits than they earn in profits, yet their employees, they cannot hold the healthcare system uh, accountable for its performance in the same way that their own products and services are held accountable for their performance. So a good example is GM. Uh, the automakers were very active from the beginning in LeapFrog because their products, cars, are held to a very high level mm-hmm. of scrutiny and have been really from the beginning. Uh, and hospitals, for example, are not held to that mm-hmm. level of scrutiny. So they said to LeapFrog back in 2000, what we want now is a national report card that will allow our employees to compare among hospitals on how they're doing in safety. And we uh, launched LeapFrog with something called the LeapFrog Hospital Survey which asks hospitals to voluntarily report to us on how they're doing on key metrics of safety and quality. So that really was the, the founding notion, and it remains really a founding principle of LeapFrog. Having said that, we're very active collaborating with a great number of organizations and individuals. We formed very strong relationships with um, experts in the field, such as Lucian Leap, who actually was one of our founders as well, mm-hmm. but a number of really significant, what I call dream team experts who are really focused in thinking about patient safety every day, they advise us on absolutely everything that we do. We are very um, focused on being um, uh, having a, a high level of integrity to the kind of data that we collect and the data that we report, and those experts have helped us uh, assure that integrity, the scientific basis for what we're uh, looking at, but also to really think about what's next. Where, where, where do we have to go with patient safety? What are the, what are the next major areas of uh, that that we can um, we can push hospitals to to get even better? So, um, we've been really pleased with experts, and then a whole variety of organizations, like-minded organizations that really um, really do care, uh, providers and hospitals themselves have, in, in fact, become active in LeapFrog. Many providers are very uh, excited about LeapFrog and really do help us to uh, advance our agenda even more. So we've, we've actually been able to make a lot, of, um, a lot of good friends and collaborators who have made us stronger and better. Well, Leah, I think if our listeners are are hearing those numbers correctly, they'll immediately go to the LeapFrog Hospital Survey, which is really considered the gold standard in hospital safety and quality comparison. But uh, you have a recent effort, which is called the Hospital Safety Score, which has also been gaining a lot of attention and traction. And uh, it ranks the nation's hospital with a letter grade based on 26 specific uh, points of observation. In fact, you just came out with the new score data from about 2,500 of the nation's hospitals. So uh, what are some of the criteria that are being graded on? How does the grading work? Also talk about hospital engagement in this process. Um, it's a voluntary system, but what, what are you seeing in terms of, of their participation on it? And how are our listeners access something like this? 
Well, uh, let me say that the voluntary aspect of LeapFrog is the LeapFrog Hospital Survey. Thank you for for saying what um, many other experts have said, which is it is the gold standard in transparency and quality rating for hospitals. That's where we ask hospitals to voluntarily report to us on uh, their on certain metrics of their quality and safety that are important to people, uh, and pr- particularly important to purchasers and important to patients. Um, and that's voluntary, as I said. 1,500 hospitals across the country voluntarily provide us with that data, which we publicly report, and we also allow others to report, so all the health plans, all the national health plans use it, et cetera. The other initiative you point out is is an initiative we started three years ago called the Hospital Safety Score, and that's the letter grade that we assign to all general hospitals in the United States um, based on how safe they are for their patients. That is not voluntary. That is a, a letter grade we assign regardless of whether the hospital has decided to report this data publicly or not. We are able to um, assess a letter grade for hospitals by using data that is publicly available from uh, from the federal government, from CMS, the agency that uh, runs Medicare. And so we are able to use data from Medicare and some other data we're able to find in the public domain uh, and we are able to give a letter grade to hospitals based on that data. If a hospital also reports to our LeapFrog Hospital Survey, then we also use that data. But if they don't report to us, we don't use it. It doesn't hurt them or it doesn't help them either way, just we don't use it if we don't have it. But um, that is a way that we are able to capture for the public uh, very critical information about how a hospital is doing on the things you don't want to have happen at a hospital. We are not looking at the good things you go to a hospital for. So you go to a hospital for a procedure, you want to get better. You want a knee replacement so you can walk better, et cetera. You go to a hospital to to, to get better, and there are rating systems that will look at how a hospital does in those kinds of procedures and the kinds of services that you're really looking for in a hospital. Our letter grade is looking at something else. We're looking at the bad things that happen, to, to put it bluntly. We're looking at the, the infection rates, the, the injury rates, the falls, the trauma, the mistakes in medications, uh, the unfortunate series of errors and accidents that happen all the time in hospitals. And we're rating the hospital on how well they do in preventing those things. So a hospital that gets an A for safety is a hospital that is safer than a hospital that gets a D, where they have a much higher rate of errors and accidents. It's a very important piece of information that really should be, the, I think, the first thing you look at. Mm-hmm. Safety comes first. You can go to a hospital with an excellent heart surgeon, but if you get an infection in recovery, it's, it doesn't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. So our score, the hospital safety score, was developed by a group of experts, Lucian Leap among them, actually, and uh, some, some very well-known patient safety experts, and they're all listed on our website, mm-hmm. hospitalsafetyscore.org. And um, they came up with a, a way of assessing those uh, actually 28 measures of safety and weighting them for on a set criteria and helped us to develop the score in, in a really a, a really a scientifically sound way. Everything is completely transparent. Um, and if you go and look at the letter grade for a particular hospital, 
you can click in and get more detail on that hospital. We will show you how the hospital did on every one of the measures we looked at. So you can really drill down and understand a lot about that hospital safety record. You can actually look at some very, very good data that will help you understand it. Because, you know, when you walk in the doors of a hospital as a patient, your life is at stake. So it is worth taking a few minutes to, to really understand how that hospital's doing. Uh, I know you have some company in the hospital rating arena, and in a recent Forbes article, you mentioned your system, along with several others, U.S. News & World Report, Consumer Report, Health Grades, Medicare just came out with its own hospital mm-hmm. rankings. Let me, uh, if I could, just ask a question that occurred to me as you were speaking. You know, the uh, healthcare industry is completely uh, absorbed in preparing for this shift to something called the ICD-10, the International Classification of Disease, version 10 versus 9 that we've been using for the last 30 years. And one of the key recommendations for doing it, if you look at all the teaching material for all of us in healthcare, a reason to do it is just this, to be able to understand at a much more uh, granular level what is happening in terms of safety and quality, both in the hospital setting and the outpatient setting. And I'm wondering if you uh, have any predictions or thoughts on how much your ratings will change when we get that much better level of data. I think we will have better ratings because really we are all dependent on the publicly available data from the federal government. In some cases, there's some state data that many of us use. In LeapFrog's case, we actually are able to go and collect data directly from hospitals. We still uh, maintain that original premise of our organization, which was purchasers asking hospitals to voluntarily report data that otherwise is unavailable, and they, they do, and we are reporting data that's otherwise unavailable. So we do have that. But anyway, the raters will have better data. You know, this uh, ICD-10 conversion, is it is something that is um, discussed a lot in the healthcare community. It's a major shift for hospitals and healthcare providers, and it's been delayed and delayed and delayed. Most people don't perhaps realize this, but most of what we know about the performance of healthcare systems comes from billing data. Mm-hmm. So basically claims, so whatever it is that a hospital, for example, bills for, we can aggregate all those bills and figure out how often they did a knee replacement and how often someone, for example, died from a procedure, we can see that because it's in the bill. Well, if it doesn't merit being included in the bill, then we don't know it. And there's a huge amount of quality information about the performance of systems that's never going to make it into a bill. So let me give you an end. What happens with ICD-10 is it's a conversion of the way they do billing. Uh, in healthcare, and that allows for more granular information about quality because it incorporates that more into the billing codes. Virtually the entire world has converted to ICD-10, except for the United States, so it really (laughs) is time for us to do it. We're speaking today with Leah Binder, Chief Executive Officer of uh, the LeapFrog Group, a not-for-profit organization dedicated to improving safety and quality in hospitals. At LeapFrog, Ms. Binder is responsible for the LeapFrog Hospital Survey and for launching the hospital safety score system. Leah, we recently had uh, Stephen Brill speaking of uh, hospital bills, and he certainly uh, <laughs> has written a number of uh, very impressive articles about transparency. And so with more measures for transparency, Transparency coming out from the Affordable Care Act and out of CMS. 
What kind of resistance are you seeing from the medical establishment? And you recently wrote about the need for uh, bipartisan action on health care transparency. And are there any champions out there that we should uh, know about or keep our eye on? Um, it, it is something that pretty much both sides of the aisle can agree on. Most of the public has now moved into high deductible health plans, something like, depends on what statistic you read, but something like 65% of workers in the country now have very high deductible health plans. What that means is that the average consumer is now much more price conscious than ever before. If you're paying the full cost of your MRI, all of a sudden you would like to know why an MRI at one place costs $2,000 and at another place $500 because that's coming out of your own pocket. So it's changing, I think, the public mood around pricing in healthcare, and we see lots of examples of that. And as a result, there's a great deal of interest on the Hill among policymakers in figuring out how we can get consumers to get their hands on information. And so if you, for example, are facing the need for a procedure, it is actually quite difficult to find out who's the best surgeon. There's very minimal ratings of physicians and surgeons, and most of it is not going to give you the kind of information that any of us would want to know before we go under the knife. Another thing we don't have information about is hospitals uh, have to go through accreditation in order to qualify to accept Medicare payments. If they don't get Medicare payments, most of them would close tomorrow. So they have to be accredited. And those reports of what happens when the Joint Commission goes on site at a hospital and observes how they're doing on a variety of quality and safety metrics are not made public. Uh, That's another source of information that it seems to me the public is entitled to see. So uh, it seems to me that it should be made public so that all of us could have the kind of information these surveyors are, are finding when they get on site at these hospitals. But I think there's a larger number of performance issues that we'd all want to know about, for which we have almost no data or no data at all. Well, Leah, you've been very instrumental at LeapFrog in generating uh, attention and focus on a problem area that other organizations like the March of Dimes have also been focused on for years, Mm -hmm. and that's reducing harm to newborns or improving birth outcomes by Mm -hmm. reducing the number of early elective deliveries, which accounts for a significant number of complications and NICU stays for babies who are just born before the optimal time. Tell us uh, a little bit about the scope of this problem and how the LeapFrog Hospital Survey is making an impact on that? Of course, for employers across the country, maternity care is a very significant part of their health benefits program. In fact, I've talked to employers for whom maternity care is half of their spend on health care in general. Until LeapFrog came along, there was very little information for people to know by provider how they're doing. So we started reporting back in 2010 on early elective deliveries. These are deliveries that are scheduled without a medical reason between 37 and 39 weeks. So the physician, provider, uh, does not let Mother Nature decide when these babies are born. Now, when they're scheduled before the 39th week has been completed of a pregnancy, they put both the mother and the baby at risk. Uh, And the baby in particular often ends up in the NICU because uh, there's a lot of um, change that happens at those last two weeks of development. That's something why the March of Dimes has been so active in trying to curtail these unnecessary deliveries. 
So we started reporting rates of early elective deliveries on the LeapFrog Hospital survey in 2010, and we found uh, to our astonishment that the rates were very high. They were something like 17%. 17% of them were unnecessary. What we also found, and we find in pr- virtually everything we look at, some hospitals had rates as high as 40 or 50%, and others had rates as low as zero. And so we started reporting that, and it really galvanized action because there's something special about seeing in print how your hospital compares to the one down the street, and it motivated a real movement starting with the March of Dimes, but also a number of other organizations and individuals got very actively engaged in trying to bring these rates down. And in our last uh, round of reporting, the rate nationally is now below 5%. So this has been an enormously effective movement, and it just shows how important transparency really can be in motivating change. We didn't make any change. That, mm-hmm. that hard work was done by these hospitals. But we put the numbers on the table, and that made a difference. We've been speaking today with Leah Binder, Chief Executive Officer of the LeapFrog Group, a not-for-profit organization dedicated to improving safety and quality in hospitals. You can learn more about their work by going to leapfrog.org or by following her on Twitter at Leah Binder. Uh, Leah, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Well, thanks so much for having me. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in US politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, listeners may wonder how effective fact-checking in journalism can be, especially considering that politicians repeat many false and misleading claims over and over again. We've long said that our job at factcheck.org isn't to change politicians' behavior. Rather, our focus is on arming voters with accurate information. And two new studies show that fact-checking can indeed lead to a better informed public. The American Press Institute's Fact-Checking Project published both studies. One, by a political scientist at Columbia University, found that even though false claims on Twitter hugely outnumber attempts to correct them, fact-checkers do appear to help Twitter debates become more accurate over time. For instance, the study analyzed tweets about a false claim that 2 million Americans would lose their jobs because of Obamacare. As we've reported before, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office said that 2 million people would decide not to work, such as retiring earlier, or to work less because of the law, not that they would lose their jobs. But the Columbia study found that tweets endorsing the false claim outnumbered those attempting to correct it by a ratio of 13 to 1 in the first three months of 2014. Still, the study found the relative share of corrective tweets increased as these types of social media frenzies started to fizzle. Another study by a professor at George Washington University found that many Americans not only believe things that aren't true, but are very confident that their false notions are correct. But the study then tested whether fact-checking could correct mistaken beliefs. It found encouraging results. About a month after the initial survey, the study gave the correct information once and briefly to those who had held mistaken beliefs. It found a significant decrease in misperceptions in those who were told the correct information. So there's some support to show that fact-checking can indeed set the record straight. 
I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Much attention has been paid of late to the need to give the nation's children ways to be more active. It's something the not-for-profit playground development agency, Kaboom, has been focused on for years. But a recent trend out of Europe and Asia has shown that kids' playgrounds maybe should not be designed just for kids, but should be reimagined and redesigned for all generations to exercise, play, and have fun, especially with a growing population of seniors in this country. In recent years, we've had funders and or community partners that have a particular interest in bringing this multi-generational piece into it. And so we've been able to be responsive to those requests. So whether it's a request for adult-focused space or um, senior-focused space, we're able to be responsive to that. Kelly Griffin is Director of Strategy at Kaboom, which partners with communities that seek to build playgrounds that meet an unmet need. And she says that these senior playgrounds, which have taken off in places like England, Finland, and parts of Asia, are now being asked for by clients here in the U.S. They decided, well, rather than build a separate playground for seniors, let's incorporate them into the children's play space. The elder-focused playgrounds are filled with all kinds of exercise equipment that fit naturally into the playground setting, but they're also designed to be easily managed by older folks with the common ailments of stiff joints, mobility problems, and balance issues. So at a community learning center outside of Orlando called the Midway Safe Harbor Center, once we built the playground and the adult fitness stations adjacent, we saw a significant increase in the number of grandparents and children using the space together. And because of the new equipment, they've now added programming, both for the adults and for the adults and the kids, to work together. So really having the adults setting the example for kids. Playgrounds designed not just with children in mind, but reimagined to keep kids of all ages actively engaged in movement and exercise, providing communities with a fun way to keep fit and active well into the older age. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.